We're recording. Oh, we should probably pray. Connor, you never oh. pray. Can you pray? <laughs> it's not true. <laughs> Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. All right. Here we are. All right. Record. How many how many weeks in are we into the the quarantine? Uh, I don't three. know. Three. Three. Yep. So you've been back from France for three weeks? Three fingers, three and a half. Three fingers. Is that better? <laughs> That's better. It is better. Well, what is today? Wednesday? So all, it'll have been, I'll have been in the United States for three weeks on Saturday. So this is the third week. We're in the third week. Mm-hmm. Man, you mentioned Holy Week in that prayer, Connor, and it's like, yeah, man, wow. it doesn't even feel like we're coming up on Holy Week, to be honest. Yeah, is it too late to have a good Lent? <laughs> it's never too late. I'm going to start giving stuff up right now. So what was your fun question? Well, Rob, did you say you had something that you wanted to talk about? I want to hear about your your question first i was hoping to just say no to whatever you wanted to talk about yeah i know exactly why so why don't you ask, <laughs> ask your question dang it you're setting me up <laughs> to do the same thing to me shoot so i was reading a book with words in it and pages and paragraphs and the like and it uh, was going back through the history of the main character and as he progresses through this journey through russia to find his son again a book's called the father's tale um it would have these little flashback moments and he'd go back in time and remember getting married and then having children and all these different significant life experiences that had stayed with him and one of the flashbacks began by saying um and i remember the moment that i became a man and it flashed back to him having an just like a really courageous, daring moment where he had to plunge off of a off of a bridge into a river and um, kind of like face a lot of his fears and choose to to do this thing that was extra courageous and dangerous and difficult and it was a cool memory and things like that. But I thought, whoa, that would be an interesting thing if you could kind of go back and pinpoint uh, like when it made me ask the question, when did I become a man? And then I thought, wow, that's a cool question. <laughs> and so I guess I posed that to you guys. Um, and maybe it's not such a precise moment, but I don't know. When would you say that you became not an adult? I don't want to say an adult because I feel like that's more like getting things done like adults should and being responsible. But when did you become a man? Uh, it reminds me, two things come to mind. One, it reminds me of something uh, Mike Warden said about when he decided to become a priest was when he realized his life was not about him or when he was said yes to the priesthood in his heart. And I think that, to me, is becoming a man or an adult, is realizing your life is not about you and accepting that um, and the freedom that that allows you. 
because as a kid you're kind of everything's about you even the idea of what adulthood has in store for you is what do I want when I grow up and but I I remember a certain moment when I went out and fought forest fires the first summer between my junior and senior year I was sitting in the truck with my boss and his and the assistant crew boss I didn't have a car at the time and we were they were driving me somewhere it might have been even to to buy a truck uh that first truck I ever bought that I drove back from California and Is that the old S10? No, the S10 oh. was my second truck. First truck was a B2200. I called it the bomber. It was a Mazda, 1987 Mazda with 227,000 miles on it. <laughs> how okay, first off, how badly would would you love to have that truck right now? I would honest. love it. Yeah, I had to junk I it. I had to junk I it cuz it uh I was just, just thinking working. about that the other day. When I turned 16, I think it was like a 92 or something like that. It was a just single cab Toyota pickup truck, five speed. And I split mm. it with my dad. Mm. And I love that thing. Like if I, I'm sure it's in a, a scrapyard at this point, but if I would ever find it, like I would, I would buy it and just drive it. It's Dang. awesome. Anyway, yeah, I loved it. Um, I bought it for like a less than a paycheck. A uh, couple months, or maybe a month into my time out there, I didn't have a car, and it was middle of nowhere. So they were like, "Hey, we saw this this truck in somebody's yard on the way back from from work." I mean, this is way out in the country in Northern California, and um, it. Uh, long story short, it was a gross polluter. I got it tested, and it was not like legal to even drive in California. <laughs> um, so I just kind of bought it. Uh, as is from the dude. I paid the sales tax and everything at the DMV, but didn't get it registered until it was in Illinois. So I drove it on this guy's plates back from California uh, after I was done using it. But great truck. And I was sitting in the car with them and they kind of, they were sort of like, why are you out here? You know, I was from the Chicago suburbs. How did, how did you end up? And it was through a friend who had been on the crew before me who recommended me. And that's how I got the job. But I basically told him, like, I came out here to become a man um, because I had never really done anything um, as adventurous or challenging or um, scary before. And I, I always had this kind of hunger. When I was a kid, my favorite movie was Rocky. kind of wanted to be like Rocky. And I always fantasized about going through boot camp. Every movie about the army that had a boot camp in it, I was like, man, I want to do that and be part of this, like crew and do something challenging and see if I could handle it and be brave. So this kind of scratched some itches for me doing that. And I remember them laughing at it, not like laughing at me, but just kind of finding it funny that like a kid came out from the suburbs to live what they kind of considered, considered a normal life. Like lots of people did stuff like this. Um, and then one time we were on this fire and it was, it was sort of a dramatic day. It was the, the end of a, of a long day and a bunch of thunderstorms came through our district, which sort of a high desert rolling hill kind of district, nothing like super steep, but lots of, lots of mountains and foothills and things like that. And, uh, my boss knew the area super well. And there's lookouts in, uh, in these kind of areas where they just look for smoke and things like that. But it was getting to the end of the day and they, <clears throat> they saw a couple little smokes on our district before the sun went down. And we also had this thing on the computer that showed you lightning strikes. Like it was some kind of measure that, that would show you where the lightning was striking in these thunderstorms on a contour map. 
And between those two pieces of data, my boss figured out like there's a fire in this place. And if it gets out of control, we, it's going to be a problem. So we just got in the trucks and drove up these backlog back, back road logging roads and got out, got our tools, got our chainsaws and, and walked into the woods totally blind, uh, trying to find where this fire was. And for half hour, an hour, we were just tromping around and finally we come out. And it's totally dark, a little bit rainy, and there's this massive, not a massive fire, but maybe like a football field on a 45-degree incline on a mountain. And we just start fighting it, and it was like one of the most dramatic, direct attack fires that we fought while I was out there. And uh, one of the chainsaw guys threw his chain, and he had to he had to like fix the chainsaw on the fly, and we're trying to hook this fire, and it was super steep and um, hot. And I remember in the middle of it, we fought it for several hours. And uh, at one point, my boss just yells to me over the roar of two chainsaws. He goes, Connor, are you a man yet? (laughs) 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 That that question screamed over the roar of flames and chainsaws has just stuck with me all these years. Are you a man yet? And I felt like in that moment, yes, yes, I am a man. (laughs) (laughs) Can't go so back. that might be the moment. I don't know. <laughs> that, that sure fits the bill. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that I would agree that that would fit the bill, and that is funny for me. The moment that came to mind, and this is, I think, this is the first time that I ever like used that particular phrase. Um, and I remember talking because my dad is, gosh, this is probably ten years ago or something like that, but. Um, my dad was always a pretty decent golfer growing up and um and not like I mean he wouldn't shoot in the seventies, but yeah, decent, decent golfer. And I'm not very good. Um, but I remember one day and so literally I played golf with my dad I don't know how many times I I'd never beaten him. And all of a sudden we're getting ready to like finish this round and you know, have five holes left or something like that, and I think it was tied or Maybe I was like up a stroke or it was something like that. And all of a sudden it was just kind of like lock in time. Like I could get him here. Mm. And so I remember uh, the the first time I used that phrase, I ended up beaten by a stroke or two that day. And I remember texting my siblings. I just beat dad at golf. I think I'm a man now. <laughs> um, I, I literally, I remember texting that to, to my siblings. Um, but which is funny. I don't know. Yeah, that's like what would come to mind. I also there. remember vividly the last time I played my dad in one-on-one and he beat me and he was mm-hmm. probably in his mid to late fifties when I was just <laughs> out of college. And it was like one of these things where you start playing horse, but then you start guarding each other. And then all of a sudden a break, a game breaks out. And my mom, <laughs> if my mom had seen it, she certainly would have told him to stop. <laughs> but he just threw his man, man weight around and beat yep. me by a couple points. And I'm like, come on one more. But, of course, he wasn't going to do that, and that was he just retired. He never played me again. Yep. <laughs> He's done. Yeah. He's done at that point, man. Yeah. The I think um, that's a fun. That's a fun question. I mean, even those memories that are coming, that are coming back. Um, yeah, I think a little bit more abstractly, I could think of a couple instances here, um, but. A line that has come and like meant a lot to me through um, through the years. I think it's Tolkien that in his letters to his son, 
and I don't know if there's a published book that I read or something like that, but somewhere you can get a bunch of Tolkien's letters to his son. And he talks about in it, his son is at war, in the war, and he's writing to him about how to be a good man or, yeah, how to be a good soldier. And he talks about, you know, I think Chesterton might talk about this too or other, I'm sure other people do, but it always has to be the love of who is behind you, never a hatred who's in front of you in war. And so he talks about, like, he kind of tells the story of how, yeah, like his son can be a good and brave soldier and, um, and in a sense, like in heaven one day be, be chums with like, you know, the guys that he is at war against and because it all stems from the love that he has for those that he's protecting and defending. It never, it never stems from like a hatred or even a dislike for the person in front of him. And that, I don't know, that, uh, distinction has meant a lot to me, I think, in maturing of, I found that, as your life is able to be more conformed around the yeah the love that you're you're called for um is that those types of decisions like hard situations and tense situations and hard decisions certainly don't go away they they actually multiply um at least in my very limited and still young experience in a lot of ways um but I found, like, reflecting on the years, that's actually a big distinction, at least to the question for me, is, yeah, when I've when I've had the capacity to make decisions, like, out of love for those entrusted to me, as opposed to, like, an agenda or preference or, um, yeah, any type of, like, yeah, just ill intent towards the people in front of me. Does that make any sense? Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been thinking about uh, a quote you had of Jacques Philippe a few weeks ago, Mike. Like any any thought that takes your peace away is not from God. Yeah, like that rubric. Um, something similar to what you just said, Rob. Like any any thought that has any vengeance to it, or you know, like a a uh, what would the word be? Sort of like a, a pushing forth of your ego rather than <clears throat> it, it kind of reminds me of this story I, I read somewhere a, a woman was talking about when she was a little girl she had a little sister who she used to play in the woods in the backyard of her house and she was a couple of years older so when they were playing <clears throat> she was always stronger and faster and things like that and there was this one time where she was running from her sister while she was chasing her and trying to keep up and her sister kept calling like stop slow down slow down and she just thought it was funny to keep running and leave her behind and her sister finally came back crying and her dad said something like um god made you stronger not so that you could push down the weak so but so that you could protect and and lift them up um and that little bit of wisdom stuck with her her whole life and i i think that that's um that's really good like what what does it mean that i because certainly you will face resistance in your life and that's another thing I've grown up in is courage and confidence in uh, just truth-telling, telling it like it is, doing what needs and, to get done regardless and, of whether. And clarity as a fruit of that. Yeah, yeah, certainly. But any piece of you, like even the people that resist you or or you feel like are obstacles or, be, you know, putting forth obstacles to your mission, uh, your God-given mission, to not 
not despise them, you know, but to even find a way to love them. Uh, but I think the men that I really look up to, like the Father Hennessy's and the Bishop Barons and um, people that I've I've seen really live that, like there's no animosity in them. You know, there's honesty about like, here, <laughs> this is the wrong point of view and I'm opposing it. But those who put it forth they have no animus towards them, you know. Because hmm. uh, I, I think the, the bottom of the question is what does it mean to be a man? Authentic masculinity. Uh, and obviously that, that comes from Christ. Like who is totally committed to uprooting sin and death. But he's not, those who are killing him, those sinners who are actually putting him to death, he, he's doing it for them. He's out of love for them. He is resisting their, their hatred, you know. I think that's what it means to be a man. As much as like doing brave and adventurous things feels well, like it's, it. Well, that was the other thing that I had, um, as well to it is that, yeah, more so than, I like that, like, in doing brave and adventurous things feels like it. Um, and I don't know, like, more and more, it's not that those things can't be, like, really fun or enjoyable or anything like that, but they do feel, like, fabricated in the sense of if that's what you're doing to try to provide authentic masculinity, then it just doesn't, like, fit, or at least at very deep um, levels. And so, I yeah, I was, I, I was kind of going through my head of, you know, I feel like more so than any like men's night that I ever went to to talk about manly stuff and, and do quote unquote manly things or anything like that. I'll be honest, like I, I feel like my time at IPF and, and learning how to like be a son and receive God's love uh, formed me way, way more deeply in the, um, yeah, just in the journey of hopefully the becoming genius. a man. Yeah, the masculine genius, exactly. Um, because it, that allows you to know who you are, you know, and it's it's just, it's not fake then. Yeah. Or when even did you like, become a man, Mike? Yeah, go ahead, Mike. Well, I mean, before I tell you that, I mean, I so I have thought about it a little bit. I mean, I wouldn't say like too much. And so mine actually sounds a lot different than maybe both of those. But I think there's also an extra um, dimension to the question where it's not just like you said, you know, at the, at the heart of the question is what does it mean to be a man, to be a true man? But I think there's also something unique about it because um, an element of this question is when did true masculinity enter into you? Or more like I realized, I realized that I actually am a man like this is actually something I'm capable of and this is what God is calling me into so a sense of like self-realization which is a really big deal and the combination of what experience drew that reality out of you is cool is interesting because it's going to be different for each person um and so there's a subjective obviously a subjective component to it but I think the subjective component is very telling uh, for each individual. Um, so for mine, cause I was thinking, <laughs> I, I didn't really feel, <laughs> this is stupid, dude. I didn't feel like an adult. I mean, I had been living on my own in college and didn't feel like a man, like thinking back, 
I was just a kid living on my own. Like I was just a an immature boy running around in college. And even, I mean, uh, even after I made the decision to go to seminary and had gone through boot camp and jumped out of airplanes and done all this other stuff, that would be like, yeah, kind of like traditionally like, um, um, this is the manly thing to do. I was still just a kid. And I remember in my senior year, I was, I was the head of my ROTC battalion, um, was the battalion commander and had already decided that I was going to seminary. And for our last military ball night, um, which is like the big celebration and all of the seniors who are about to be commissioned officers, you get honored and they do awards and like I did the opening prayer and the closing prayer and we had all these videos and it, you know, it would be like the Christmas party up at seminary. It's like this big, big event. Well, I was stupid. I was really, really stupid and just had had one too many drinks. We'll just say that and uh, just like embarrassed myself big time and acted like a big fool. And I mean, everything was okay. It was more like I was personally ashamed by it. I was really embarrassed because of all the things that I represented and did in front of everybody and just felt really stupid. And it wasn't the moment of feeling stupid, but it was the stuff that came after that. It was like the first time in my life I had to take responsibility for my own actions in a really new way. And so I remember calling my dad and kind of talking to him and expressing my sadness and and him um saying like hey man it's okay you know this is part of growing up and you do stupid stuff and and that's not the end of the world and so now you got to get up and, and keep going and i had to go to my commander and apologize to her and then like uh had to step back up and try to be a leader in the battalion and it was and it was tough but you know it ended up being this huge learning process for me where um, I mean, I, like one of the things that I keep coming back to is I had to take responsibility for my life in a new way, not just for my actions, but like, no, man, I, I want to live a certain way. And I realized I don't want to do that. That's like, that part of me is done. Um, mm. and maybe that's an aspect of it. Yeah. There was like a real death, like a death to that kid. Uh, he's got to he's got to die or at least be integrated into me in a new way, um, and it it wasn't really one instant for it, but it was the process of um, the process that followed after this kind of buffoon this buffoon mistake that I had made um, of yeah like looking back like man that was the first time that I I really felt like. Okay, after all of that, I I think I was a, finally a man after that. Uh, hmm. Yeah, I think the, the process thing is a really good insight because there are parts of me that I feel like aren't integrated or aren't grown up yet um, that I never really had access to until I was a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit more mature, or in a circumstance where this aspect of my my courage or my confidence or my masculinity was tested um 
But all those little things like that experience, I, one that sticks out to me, I've mentioned in talks on masculinity before, is when my it was my eighth grade graduation, we all signed each other's yearbooks out in the lawn of the school, and I wrote something inappropriate in one of my friend's yearbooks and signed my name to it like a dummy. And his mom <laughs> called my mom that night and read it to her, and I was so ashamed. And she had me ride my bike over to their house, ring the doorbell, and, and apologize to the mom. Yeah. And hmm. it was like the best punishment uh, because I had to, like you said, take responsibility. And it, it wasn't like a punishment where now um, I'm all mad at my mom because I'm grounded. It was like, here, go face face the consequences of your actions. Um, carry Carry this guilt, but like unload it through taking responsibility, being forgiven, reconciled. Um, and it gave me that, that new confidence, the same way that like going to confession does where you, you're not just like, Oh, I'm a good person. I'm fine. God forgives me, but actually owning it and receiving a, a word, uh, and forgiveness of it. Yeah. I think it's, it is a process and there's no time when you kind of arrive at the fullness of like now I'm a man. I think yep. there's a great Mike Father Mike Schmidt's talk on the on the fall with masculinity and femininity and the the place of Adam and Eve in that story. And one of the insights was like after after the fall, because Adam he he kind of does this imaginative exercise that like if Adam's the the tiller of the garden, he's his job is to protect the garden. Then the serpent being like him leaving Eve to fight the serpent alone, like where is he at in that? You know. Um, and the fact that he wouldn't or couldn't be there and stand shoulder to shoulder with her, um, and left her to fight alone. Now she looks at him and, and questions like, are you really a man or do you, and he, and he feels that pressure. And that question is at the heart of a lot of sin for men is like compensating for that or, or or living out of that feeling of inadequacy that I'm not good enough or I'm not man enough. Whereas for women, it's, it's something simple, similar, but complementary. Like I'm not worth fighting for. I'm not worth dying for. I'm not good enough or lovable enough. And we live out of those, those lies. Um, so I think that it's, it's just like every bit of God's grace in, in our lives, you know, it's usually good coming out of bad. You know, like those times, like your your yeah. military ball. <laughs> so those are the, mysteriously the times where you feel most like you're growing as a man. Is that here's a place where I feel totally unmasked as a fraud or bad or irresponsible, and then that becomes the occasion of you actually owning up and and becoming a man. You know what I mean? Yeah, because in yeah. a sense, like all the things that I found to be important and that I, I wanted to continue in the future were put on the line. And normally, you know, growing up, it was like, everything's going to be fine, whatever. Like, everything's just a joke, and it's just going to work out because it, everything always works out. And then it was, like, serious enough to actually call into question, like, is this really how you want to live your life? Like, nobody else... This isn't anybody else's thing. Uh, you can't point the finger at anybody. Nobody's going to come in and just rescue you, you know. That's not, like, daddy's not coming to save you. 
And, you know, this is the bed you've made right now. And so a part of it was changing the sheets, like admitting that that was, uh, yeah, I mean, admitting your wrongdoing, but then, but then also like having people around me that were so good with such a grace that that conversation with my dad, I was so worried that he was just going to drop the hammer on me and just call me a buffoon and all these things. And, and he did. He said, Mike, you're an idiot, <laughs> but that's okay, dude. Like you get up and you keep, and you keep going. And like, I still love you. And, and he gave me some advice, like you should do X, Y, and Z and kind of taught me how to deal with the consequences of my mistake in the proper way, in an honorable way, in a way that like, okay, that's how I want to live. I, we I taught you how this to other, yep. like take responsibility in it almost that's good that's the word that kept coming to mind for me yeah have i told have i told you guys the story of uh when my brother and i smashed my mom's door frame on accident i told that on the cast did it involve a wwe move no that's another story that was the pile driver right (laughs) that was just that was just big trouble (laughs) yeah that was uh no we had one of those little basketball hoops in our hallway um yeah we had one of those in the cam for a while didn't we too that was awesome Oh, um, like that hangs on the door? Yeah, that like hangs yeah. on the door. And we would have intense basketball games. And it was one of the, it was like the perfect storm of mom had told us to, to you know, settle it down probably four or five times. And we were going for a loose ball or a box out or I don't even know. But we had my mom and dad's bedroom door closed and we just hit it full bore. And it actually, it not only like smashed the door down, but like it, it like shattered the door frame <laughs> itself. And my, my mom has like these beautiful like wooden door frames in the house. Oh, and man. it was real, real, real bad. Um, but my dad was able to fix it. And I, I mean, we were young, you know, probably, I was probably 10 or 12 or something. Um, I was 25, okay. <laughs> it was this past <laughs> summer. <Yeah. laughs> um, but I still remember going, so my dad was furious, like so mad. And um, yeah, he took us up to, and like so mad he wasn't talking, but he took us up to the hardware store in town and we had to, we had to buy the supplies with our own money um, to fix it. So we had to get a couple like clamps and the right glue and all that, you know, and it probably cost us each like 25 bucks or something but when you have 35 dollars to your name like that's a big (laughs) thing you know um but he was adamant that like we were going to pay for the stuff and um i i remember thinking at the time it's like that's four dragon ball z figures that i just lost oh gosh i know right like how could you be so cruel dad how can you not understand uh But then the thing that I always remember is that, like, he was the one, like, he made us help him, but then he fixed it, you know? And I just, I still remember doing that project with him. And, like, you can still, if you still look to this day, you can still see, you have to look really close because he did such a good job with it, but you can still see, like, where the door frame is cracked there in in the house. Right. And, yeah, so, I mean, it's a little bit different feel, um, but I, I just kind of heard that even in... Yeah, but like both your guys' stories or that conversation with your dad, Mike, is so cool of like, yeah, you have to learn that it's, you. it's almost like, and this could be off, but like you have to have someone you trust tell you it's okay to take responsibility. Yeah. 
it's something like that um with it like that is a learned process thing mm-hmm. um yeah i don't know the only other oh go ahead yeah well it's somebody who's also gone through it as well so that, that somebody that you trust that's credible and right. who is also speaking from a place of like authentic masculinity and love yeah um, yeah and like later yeah even in that story later years we can laugh about it and oh, then it usually bad, also yeah. brings up the story when my dad literally sunk his dad's boat. So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> like, what? You couldn't have said that then when you're making us buy these clamps, yeah. Dad? Come on, man. Yeah, no, that's that's that goes under the line. I'll tell you when you're older. Mm-hmm. You'll understand when you're older. <laughs> yeah. But you know, just thinking about it now is like I don't want to overemphasize the. Like, I did something bad, and part of becoming a man was realizing, like, taking responsibility it f- f- for just feeling bad for my actions. Like, that was certainly a, a real piece of it. And, like, experiencing some of that guilt and not being able to scapegoat that on anybody else and taking responsibility for that, for sure. But it, it was also, like, the realization that what I do matters, like my actions have consequences right and that's a really good thing like i matter and mm-hmm. i can choose to use my my actions for really good things or i can keep doing stupid stuff like this and now that i know how my like how i carry myself and conduct myself i don't want to do bad stuff like that anymore that's stupid <laughs> i want to use the power that I have in order to, to do good things, you know? And, and I think that was like maybe the more, the more foundational experience was my goodness, the things I do have consequences in real life, both on me and my family and other people. And that's significant because that means that like you can really affect and impact people, um, and yourself, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess like philosophically or theologically talking about it, like, oh, here's a real experience of recognizing that I am cooperating in in creation in some way. And I can either destroy it or I can build it. That's a big... That's, that's a, a very r- Jordan Peterson idea, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. One of his chapters, what is that? It's very foundational to his kind of philosophy. He's like... You you can either choose to take responsibility and make the world more ordered, like make your bed in the morning, or you can just kind of like say, who cares, and uh, just take whatever you want as it comes, but take no responsibility for the wider world or the wider environment that you're a part of. Uh, and it's just the case that it's more fulfilling uh, and more human to to do the latter, to take responsibility as hard as that is. And especially as you get older, like I'm thinking of your dad, like if you asked your dad this question, when did you become a man? He would have, he would have stories of, of his dad, you know, and some places where it was counterproductive, like you, you were, you were made to feel not like you were capable of taking responsibility, but like just you're a screw up and you're, you know, cause your dad could have handled that in any number of ways when you right, called yeah. and you were afraid of, of a certain way he could have handled it that he didn't. I'm, I'm always struck by your stories, Mike, that you went to your dad so readily 
with these things. Um, because that's hard, you know, to, as a boy to expose, like, I'm not a man, I don't measure up and you are Leonard Sachs has this whole thing. Like you can't, to be a man, you have to see a man, you know, your dad is the first man you see. And that's kind of like the archetype of, of manliness to you was to me. Uh, and so like to be vulnerable with that man and to say, like, I'm not, I'm there, not there yet. Teach me how to do it. Uh, is hard, but yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but well, Rob, about, I cut you off. You were going to, yeah. And it was actually right? a question. It was actually a question for you to flesh out more. Um, but just flesh out more when you say it was when you were, this was a while ago when you were talking about the same, the same story, like, um, with that experience, but, and then like, what do you flesh out what you mean when you say integration, like to integrate it? What does that, what does that look like? Like, how do you do it? Oh, because you said it, and I know what you mean, but I just yeah. want to, yeah, I think that'd be a cool kind of place to take it. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I acted a fool <laughs> not to, like, uh, and it was a ton of fun. It was like we had worked so hard for these four years, and we finally got to celebrate the accomplishment of getting through school and ROTC and had this big military dinner and um it was a celebration of us right before we got commissioned um and the work that we had put in and all these things and so the proper thing to do was to celebrate and to to rejoice to have this festivity and i just took it too far you know and i mean at one point i was like fireman carrying another like freshman i was running around the dining hall in my dress uniform like yelling and i had him over my shoulders <laughs> it was like spinning around and i mean part of it's like you just get rowdy with a lot of these military things and um and so that type of activity is literally encouraged but then you can take it too far and so what i guess integration in this case would look like is not saying because that's my tendency is to just cut it off completely and to say no no fun no partying no festivity no celebration um but that's not what's called for and so in this case it was allowing all of those good things party festivity celebration um rejoicing like celebrating for hard work um but aiming those things not at just fun but like integrating those things into you know the, a larger a larger view of what i want my life to be about um and so like acting like an army officer at the time acting like somebody who's going to be going into seminary you know like um so there there are great elements of what we were doing um and so we don't want to kill like, I don't want to kibosh the whole thing and throw the baby out with the bathwater. But I want to allow the things that are not, um, that don't correspond with what I think, like, meaning and, and life and love comes from. And let those things die. And then allow the other parts to really be integrated into, um, like, my deep, deep belief of who I think I am and, and how I think God wants me to live. And, and how I want to live. Uh, but that takes, that's like the whole discernment process. 
is trying to figure out, well, what what is the good element within it? Allowing those things to go by the wayside that are not a part of that. And then letting the goodness, you know, be like replanted and maybe re reengaged um, when you're capable of it. Um, yeah, so maybe, I mean, I don't know if, if that answers it at all. No, thanks. I, I'm genuinely always interested in in that. Like, whenever I hear that term, like, I oftentimes think of, um, yeah, like, just going back. And again, very, I hope this isn't too ambiguous, but just, like, going back to that place that you know who you are. And, like, hey, I can identify, like, this this was a mistake. Like, this was a stupid thing to do. But exactly, I think what you're saying is like, but there were good elements of like what we were attempting. And it just like this happened or this happened. But I'm not bad because I know who I am. And I know I know whose likeness I'm created in. Does that make any sense? And so it's like through that experience, then I always think of integration as like, no, you actually learn in a deeper way who you are if you allow yourself to integrate it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the the opposite of integration, disintegration, or or you could even say dissociation, is a a tendency. Like in like a temptation in that situation might have been for you. Or it certainly would be for me in analogous situations. Like that that guy is an idiot. I hate him. You know, uh, I don't want to think about that person anymore. He's dead. Uh, that was making those decisions or, or was that selfish or silly or embarrassing? Um, whereas I, I feel like what your dad did and then what, what God the Father does to integrate our person is to take those memories and like the healing of memories is to say like to see the good in that in that person, you know, not in the in not the good and the evil that you've done, but the I mean, all sin is hamartia, m- missing the mark. Like it's not a it's not a unholy desire it's a misdirected desire or misdirected energy um if you take that same passion that same joviality and like you're the life of the party uh and that's that's what i see in you dude is like people want to be around you because you're fun and festive and don't take yourself too seriously like those those good things in you that were at work there that just got like misdirected or disordered you don't want to fall into a, a thing like, no, to be a good Christian or be a good seminarian or be a good officer is to just to not have any fun and, and to take myself more seriously or like to not integrate uh, the lesson there of like, what's, yeah. how do I discipline my personality so that I'm the same person, but um, without these disordered ways of expressing that personality or selfish ways. Um but I, that's what I think of as like, you know, my teenage years or, or, or different memories I have of like that feeling of inadequacy or embarrassment to just look back on that kid or that teenager or that 20 something and be like, ugh, I don't even want to think about him. I, I despise that person, you know? Um, and God is always inviting us in to be like, no, I love that part of you. This is, this is a part of you that I bless. You know, you made a decision that was alienating and needs to be, you need to take responsibility for it. But in that, you also, like, it's not, the reason why that's a grace moment is not only because you're owning up to the evil that you've done, but that you're then reclaiming your goodness, you know? 
like this is my identity. Um, that I don't need to dissociate this aspect of my person or this part of my story from me in order to be lovable or even or in order to be a man, you know? Yeah. Because uh, there's all sorts of false masculinities that can grow out of that or false identities if you simply just dissociate from everything that you don't like about yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, and it's really interesting because that's not an easy thing to do and I think you get the tension of like maybe that's why it's difficult to mature into authentic masculinity is because I mean you do have to kind of have a loose grip on it um, so that you can actually quit making the same mistake like it would also be wrong for me it would have been wrong for me to be like oh well those were all I was just having a good time so whatever and just sorry keep doing, for partying yeah, sorry for being awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and then just keep doing the same thing as well, like which also happens. Um and so there's an inability to to recognize that oh man, this actually isn't a good thing and um yeah, I'm I'm hurting myself essentially in in this way and and not being able to grow up um but also to still have fun at the same time, like that's a tough balance. And I think you see where you kind of get the extremes of it. You know, the the person who's is has fun. I we're kind of like stuck on this example, but to play this out, like no fun, no festivity, no party, no celebration. Um, and then, you know, as I get older, even like being able to look at my little brothers, um, and seeing them make like a stupid mistake, that's what this is, a stupid mistake. And, but I have a sense that if, if I wasn't able to, and I, I hope this doesn't, this isn't about me and being awesome, uh, even though that's kind of what we're talking about right now. Um, <laughs> but if that part of me wasn't integrated, then I could see my little siblings make a stupid mistake and freak out over it, you know, in overreaction, like, hey, no. No, you need to grow up. You need to like get over that. You need to mature. That's not what it means to be a man and have an overreaction on something that is a, a little bit of a mistake um that you're meant to grow from, you know? Um and so I, I think that's a part of where that masculinity grows into being an authentic father. Um so that you know, you grow into a man who's maybe a bachelor, but then you're not meant to stay there the whole time that this is a part of a process into growing into you know this vocation and the life and the person that God has planned for you and so because my father went through that process he was able to speak to me like a good loving father and then because of his love now you know hopefully I'm able to see those same things both in myself and in other people like a good loving father instead of the disintegration or disassociation where I see a stupid, immature mistake, and I don't Katie bar the door, like freak out and light my hair on fire by overreaction. Um, you know, so there's a, I guess there's a type of a balance that has to take place in the process of growing into authentic masculinity there. D does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that's part of the frustration is. When you have the guy who also won't grow up, you're like, dude, you gotta stop, you gotta grow up, you know? 
Um, and so we yeah, that's where the what I do matters thing really comes right. into play. Like, yeah. nah, man, it doesn't matter. I remember this guy in the fire crew who uh, people were complaining about George W. at the time because he was president and, you know, just like, oh, what an idiot and blah, blah, blah. And uh, somebody was like, hey, dude, did you vote? This guy Barrett, who was a drug dealer that became a firefighter because he wanted to get a legit job. He goes, no, dude, I don't vote. Voting doesn't even matter. And she's just like, then you can't complain. <laughs> you know, and it was just like to be the, the typical, uh, yeah, like not like the world sucks and I'm, I'm unsatisfied with the way things are, but I'm not even going to vote, you know, because it doesn't matter. What I do doesn't matter. And that, that attitude of like me, um, I can see in myself a lot that, that, that immature kind of adolescent attitude, uh, is very uh it's very available if we if we want to do that because it's it's sort of an escape from having to take responsibility but it um but it's not free you're not free because like while your sphere of influence may be small you know and you feel determined by it like i can't change a thing like even in my own life like i i can't change the way things are all the time because i'm not capable or i don't see everything but in just having this internal locus of control where like I do have some control. I do have, I do have responsibility for what I, what I can do. Um, all of a sudden like the, the chaos of the world, especially at a time like this, where just what, what do you even do? You know, like I get anxious about what, are, what are we doing as a church right now, uh, for people and, um, what's going to be the fallout of all this. And just like manage your, Till your garden, make your bed, do do what you can do. Podcast like it's going out of style. Um, <laughs> you know, like that's a much, there's a lot more peace in that than just being like, whatever, there's nothing I can do. Everybody's an idiot except me. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Can, I'm can awesome. I, yeah. <laughs> can I follow up with that with a, you guys know it's uh, Cardinal Francis Xavier Winvent town the the guy who was in prison for like 15 years wow. do you guys know that story uh vaguely i know of him yeah so uh yeah bishop Rocky sent us this awesome reflection by him he gave this at the 2002 um i, I literally just sent it to a few other people before so i pulled it up here but um yeah he gave this at the 2002 la um conference education conference and he was describing so it says here, in 1975, he was dis- detained and escorted where he was held in house arrest. Um, without ever being tried or sentenced, he was taken to North Vietnam where he was in prison for more than 13 years, nine of which were spent in solitary confinement, um, this, this cardinal. And this is his reflection on it. Do you guys care if I share? Please. No, please, man. He, he says, all prisoners, myself included, constantly wait to be let go. I decided then and there that my captivity would not be merely a time of resignation, but a turning point in my life. I decided I would not wait. I would live in the present moment and fill it with love. For if I wait, the things I wait for will never happen. The only thing that I can be sure of is that I am going to die. No, I will not spend time waiting. I will live the present moment and fill it with love. A straight line consists of millions of little points. 
Likewise, a lifetime consists of millions of seconds and minutes joined together. If every single point along the line is rightly set, the line will be straight. If every minute of a life is good, that life will be holy. Alone in my prison cell, I continued to be tormented by the fact that I was 48 years old, in the prime of my life, that I had worked for eight years as a bishop and gained so much pastoral experience, and there I was isolated, inactive and far from my people. One night from the depths of my heart, I could hear a voice advising me, why torment yourself? You must discern between God and the works of God. Everything you have done and desire to continue to do, pastoral visits, training seminarians, sisters, and members of religious orders, building schools, evangelizing non-Christians. All of that is excellent work, the work of God, but it is not God. If God wants you to give it all up and put the work into his hands, do it and trust him. God will do the work infinitely better than you. He will entrust the work to others who are more able than you. You have only to choose God and not the works of God. This light totally changed my way of thinking, and when the communists put me in the hold of the boat along with 15 other prisoners and moved us to the north, I said to myself, here is my cathedral. Here are the people God has given me to care for. Here is my mission. To ensure the presence of God among these, my despairing, miserable brothers, it is God's will that I am here, and I accept his will. And from that minute onwards, a new peace filled my heart and stayed with me for 13 years. Good Mike stuff, John. huh? Yeah, man. Good gravy. <laughs> That's a man. That is a man. Wow. That's awesome, dude. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I would not wait. It's mm. a good line. Well, I just I like the line. I actually was thinking as you were talking, I don't it, what like cued me into it was this part about a life is made up of minutes and seconds. Mm-hmm. And so it's in those. It's like, yeah, no, just back to any of these stories it's like that's what life is is made out of and decisions and actions matter and so get back up man get back up let's try harder let's do it you're here (laughs) we need you here but we actually need you up here you're here (laughs) (laughs) hey what did father bob say yesterday we said father bob what's the what what advice do you have for two young bucks okay (laughs) Uh, you seem like a young buck. Why don't you try to give that a tear? <laughs> <laughs> can't can't do it. Uh, Tries to tear that phone book in half. No, it's a piece of Tupperware. Oh, it is a piece of Tupperware. You're right. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's trying, trying to, to tear a piece ship. of Tupperware. <laughs> That's right. And he runs it over with his car. Dang it. Dang it. Father Bob said, carpe diem. Seize the day. Mm-hmm. Seize the day, man. Carpe weekend. Carpe, <laughs> seize that carb. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, good talk. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna do it again. Uh, what later tonight or tomorrow morning? <laughs> I say both. I say both. <laughs> Just both. Uh, uh, three out a day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's what the fans have been waiting for for a long time. I don't, okay. I don't think so. <laughs> Has there been clamoring? Have they been clamoring for this? Some clamoring, yeah. Hey, I do have one thing after we after you quit recording. It's it's small, but wanted to share it with you guys. Yeah, we can cut it. I think the next time and we've never ever been successful in following up a podcast with anything from the previous podcast, but 
It was funny because the word that I was thinking today to talk about, you guys both mentioned multiple times, festival. Mm. Of like, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm missing, man. And it's totally first world like problems in a lot of ways. But um, it's interesting how much like that means to us of, of the notion of a festival and how human that is and how much of a part of our life that is. So anyway, just throwing that out there for, for next time. No. All right. Cutting it. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Good girl.